Welcome to episode six of Across the Pond. We are back and today it's the Christmas edition. Pond, across the pond, with Barry and Chad. Welcome back to Across the Pond. As I said, today is the Christmas edition. Um, I'm not entirely sure if you will get any benefit from this if you're listening on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or any of those platforms. But certainly if you are tuned in on YouTube, you will definitely have a little giggle throughout the episode. Barry, how are you doing on that side, other side of the planet? I'm doing very well. It's always exciting to get the Christmas spirit. Uh, one of my favorite times of the year, everyone is in good spirits and is all enjoying the festivities. And so things are good. And you're side chat yeah all good uh, definitely feeling the the festivity in the air here in london loads of christmas lights and and just uh, yeah just lights in the street everywhere um it's beautiful and yeah you can certainly feel as we're kind of coming into the last sort of working week of the year everyone's starting to ease it off a bit so uh yeah just definitely looking forward to the festive break yeah, it's really, it was a really cool time of year and time with family, time with friends, a kind of chill after the long, long 2019 and look forward to 2020. Uh, so this should be a good one. Absolutely. Let's get on with it. The week that was. All right. And in this week, there's one story that is dominating the headlines and it's very, very important for both of us is the, the UK election that finally took place. Now, Brexit and the UK have been in a serious turmoil for the last couple of years, and uh, we slightly to see some serious changes, and uh, recently a huge election there in the UK, and Chad's got a lot of information to tell us about what happened, what the sentiment's like, and uh, what's going on down there. So Chad, take us away. Absolutely. So yeah, pretty much over the weekend, we uh, woke up to the results of the general election. So obviously, Boris Johnson taking a bit of a gamble um, on the basically the next step to his Brexit campaign and calling it a general election. And essentially, the results are, are telling it was a major success. Um, basically, a lot of the North and the Midlands um, have turned. So you've got constituencies that have never voted Conservatives in the past. They've always been Labour-dominated parties, and all of a sudden they are now blue. So if you look at the the map of the UK before and after, um, there were you know scatters of red all of, all about before, but now a kind of resounding blue, um, sort of in the, in in the north and and the Midlands. So basically, this is Labour's worst results since the 1930s. Sure. Um, their leader Jeremy Corbyn, obviously not pleased, uh, made a statement at the end of this that he would not be leading another party in another campaign. Um, but he's not yet stepped down. He wants to make sure that he has oversight over who is the next leader. And uh, yeah, basically to kind of uh, make sure that the succession plan is in order. Um, and also on the, on the highlights note, the Lib Dem leader, Joe Swinson, lost her seat as well. So this was uh, quite a uh, quite an interesting thing to follow. The Conservatives have yeah, taken majority and now have everything they need to essentially pass the Brexit deal that they have got. What's it looking like on that side? Uh, what's everyone's sentiment? Yeah, it it it's it's surprising. I, I I was curious to find out what is the what is what was the expectation on that side. As far as I understand, this is quite an upset. Uh, I think it was expected the Conservatives would probably win, but with this kind of majority, seems to be quite quite a surprising result. Um, and, and as you say, to see um, like counties and areas was previously were the other way to now do this big switch really says something about it. And uh, to watch Boris do the same gamble that Theresa May did a couple of months ago and have a completely different result is really interesting. So, so I was wondering, is it as surprising as I think it is, Chad? Absolutely. So as I said, this is Labour's worst results since the 1930s. It is the Conservative Party's biggest majority since the 1980s. Um, and yeah, certainly it was a surprise to I think a lot of people. And Brexit obviously being the overriding factor in this one. So if you look at the referendum and the counties that voted to leave, those counties have now switched to the Conservatives because they're pretty much fed up um, over what Labour has uh, has done. Um, you know, and, and essentially they're kind of not, they're not having a clear message for Brexit and essentially the Conservatives' manifesto of get Brexit done was clear, concise and essentially delivered. 
I think also another subplot that's worth discussing is what this means for Scotland as well. Uh, we've seen that the the likelihood of a Scotland referendum now goes way up because of this result. Um, and so this could be the tipping point for a, a lot of change in the United Kingdom, not just in Great Britain itself, but in the, in the surrounding areas. I think it's going to be a very interesting pivoting point as to whether Boris can finally get this done now with all the support that he needs. He really has no excuses now. And assuming they get Brexit yeah. done, what does it mean for Scotland going forward? It's going to be interesting to watch. Well, that's the thing. I think what's really good is following the victory, he kind of uh, made it very clear that he wants to reward the trust of the people who have switched. Um, and so it definitely doesn't sound like he's kind of just going to take their votes and uh, and not really uh, honor them. So, yeah, in terms of Scotland and that, and that point, uh, yes, SMP, you know, kind of taking the majority there. And uh, yeah, there's definitely certainly calls for independence on Scotland's front. So that'll definitely be interesting to watch. The thing that I'm quite interested in, and certainly in monitoring over time, aside from Brexit, and that now all coming to a close, potentially beginning of next year, this is now uh, the opening up of the for the Conservative parties for the next five years. Um, and so I think something that's really important for us to monitor over that time is to hold them accountable for all of the promises that they made at the time of the manifesto. So I just kind of just did a little bit of a dump just so we can have a quick look at, at what those were. So some of the top notes, extra funding for the NHS, 50,000 more nurses and 50 million more GP surgery appointments a year quite a quite a quite a big uh, commitment to make that side 20,000 more police and tougher sentencing for cr criminals an interesting one for me and also for for any South Africans listening um, is looking at putting through an Australian style points based system to control immigration now obviously we know immigration one of the reasons why Brexit came about in the first place uh, people not feeling that uh, Britain is uh, Britain anymore so this looks like quite an interesting one to add um, and I think yeah definitely seems like a productive way of, of doing it so control the borders but at the same time have a little bit of fairness in, in letting people who qualify come in and out and following on from that a bunch of other things uh, but I think those are those are sort of the, the the cliff notes that I think we should be tracking over time. Yeah, I, I'd like to discuss the immigration thing a little bit more as well. I think the point system is an interesting, interesting uh, idea, and we've seen lots of vari yeah. variations in Australia, in Canada, in the US, etc. And uh, this open borders policy versus immigration, and this this whole debate that's happening all around the world is really on a knife edge at the moment, and it feels like countries are trying to figure out whether they want to go full open borders and let as many immigrants in as possible and a lot of developing countries are doing that because they want the talent to come in and they need the workers places like Japan and whatnot yeah. who need workers to to prop up their aging economy and then you've got the opposite side of the coin people like the US who want to keep as many people out as possible because they're trying to protect the interests of their own people um, and these these point systems are an interesting way to try and look at various criteria that someone brings to the table and almost to value that that potential citizen and figure out are they going to be a net contributor to society um, and that contribution yeah. is obviously very um arguable and debatable and uh, those point systems can often be gamed like if you know exactly what the points are doing you can often game it and and make your application in a way that matches those points um, and so there's a lot of behavioral sure. science and a lot of like difficult thinking that needs to go in place before you implement something like that um, i know for friends of mine who are trying to get from south africa into various other countries they live and breathe that point system they know it backwards they know exactly what yeah. they need to do to, in order to 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 get the the right result there um, and so i think a lot of this will come with, with time and figuring out what is the right balance in that system and what kind of criteria matters um, but philosophically it's very interesting to debate what those criteria are and what you should be what you should be valuing what you should be celebrating right whether it's just academic achievement whether it's um, financial incentives yep. whether it's all sorts of religious or ethical or social um, criteria it's interesting to think about each country is trying to do it for their own like background and their own immigration policy um, and it's something that I've been fascinated by in the last few months and watching it unfold is is very interesting to see how different countries deal with it in different ways. Definitely, yeah, completely agree. It's, it's really an interesting topic and uh, we'll have to see what sort of policies they come up with. Um, but it's certainly interesting to follow, as I said, for South Africans who used to a while back have uh, the option of, of coming here on sort of work visas. Obviously, we know New Zealand and Australia have similar type situations and it's, it's very common. It's almost like a rite of passage for somebody to who's living in New Zealand to come and spend about 
two years here in London um, after, you know, and then moving back afterwards. So it'll be really nice for us to open up that uh, opportunity again for South Africans and others from around the world. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I think it's just a, a nice thing uh, for us to, to monitor. So yeah, certainly interesting developments there and we'll have to see how the Conservative Party gets on and uh, hopefully everyone who, who voted that way doesn't regret it uh, in the end. Barry, will you talk us through the next one? For sure. Our next story on the week that was is looking at New Zealand, as you were just chatting about a bit earlier. Uh, there was unfortunately a terrible natural disaster that happened about a week ago um, where um, a giant volcano on an island called White Island erupted. And uh, a lot of tourists who were on that island who were hiking that volcano unfortunately lost their lives and a lot of them are in severe and critical conditions. As far as I understand, the volcano was... They had pegged at about a 40% chance of erupting when the guys were on the volcano. And unfortunately, 40% happens 40% of the time. And this is one of those times. And so it erupted. And unfortunately, on an island like that, there's not much room to get out. Right? If you're on that volcano, it's very difficult to escape. And that lava moves so quickly that if you're up there, unfortunately, you've got no real chance. And so as, as, as of today, we, we're recording this. There's 16 people who have been confirmed dead and another 14 in the hospital. Um, a lot of them in critical condition. Um, and so... So we really do offer our condolences and our prayers and thoughts there. Um, what I found interesting was the stories of the helicopter pilots who were flying from New Zealand to White Island and saving people from the burning lava itself. I watched some of the footage and saw some of the photos of some of the conditions that these helicopter pilots were piloting into the island. And it's unbelievable. Through the smoke, through the lava, landing and pulling people out and yeah. saving lives. Um, and that kind of first response is really, really amazing to see, especially when there's a, only like a, s a limited number of people involved in this disaster, right? But it doesn't matter. Those helicopters go in and they save one person, one person, one person because those lives are valuable. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's an interesting discussion about whether volcano tourism is going to take a huge hit because of this, right? Obviously, obviously, climbing a volcano is on, on a lot of people's bucket lists and it's a really, really cool thing to see. And uh, you see those photos and you yeah. kind of think, oh, I really want to go and do that. Uh, but there is serious risk there. And it's the kind of risk that you can't protect against. Um, it's one of those things when Mother Nature has its, has its way. Uh, so I was curious to hear what you think chad yeah absolutely tragic i also obviously just saw that popping up on the news feed um as it was happening um and as you say just, just i think just the, just the act of discovering over time how many people were there at the time um and obviously there were boats kind of passing by the the island at the time people on board were even uh, you know scared at just seeing this amount of smoke that they've kind of not really seen before um, so, yeah, certainly heroic pilots and, uh, yeah, just really good to see how committed people are at, at saving even just that one life. Every single life is valuable. Um, and, yeah, I mean, I saw you I saw you put down a statue of how much skin has been ordered um, to, to treat these people. I mean, can you order skin? That's what I found fascinating is that so with so many of these burns, a lot of these, these patients in critical condition need a lot of skin because their, their skin has really been, been burnt off and lots of third degree burns there. Uh, so what I found out was New Zealand didn't have enough skin on in their like in inventory or didn't have enough to treat these people. So some of the patients went to Australia who received treatment there, but the guys in New Zealand, New Zealand had to go and order more skin, right? And so what happens is that if you're an organ donor, when you die, you, you donate a lot of your skin or a lot of your organs as well. Right. And so there are banks of these organs where you can go and get organs if you need at a moment's notice. So I'm not sure exactly where it is in the world or where, the, where that skin came from, but they went and ordered it, I think it said 120 square meters of skin. And to put it in perspective, the average human body has about a one square meter of skin. So it's about en enough skin for 120 people worth. Uh, which I, th I thought was quite interesting. And I was reading about it. They say yeah. that most of it comes from patients um, at the back of their legs and on their backs. That's kind of the most standard uh, skin that comes from. And they only take like the top layer. So they don't take deep, deep layer. They take a top layer, almost the layer that burns when you get a sunburn and peels off. So it's a very, very thin layer of skin. And then they layer those layers onto the, onto the patient to try and get the skin to take on their new body. Um, so I thought that was interesting. It, okay. it, we, we don't often think about those kind of organs as a necessary life-saving device. Like we think about hearts and kidneys and stuff sometimes. But skin is something I haven't thought about, certainly. Um, and the idea of them ordering yeah. skin, flying them into New Zealand to save these people's lives, it's, it's fascinating to me. Yeah, I think that's the interesting one is, is skin is actually an organ. Mm. We always talk about, you know, the heart and, and various other organs, but we don't really ever regard skin as, uh, as, as that. And it is an incredibly important commodity. Um, 
and uh, just really good that there was a bank available to help these people. Um, hopefully, it's it it doesn't grow that uh, death toll and and you know certainly the people in in hospital as well. Um, so we'll have to monitor that. Deepest condolences to anyone in New Zealand and uh, anyone who sort of was you know caught up in any way um, in this tragedy. We've we've had these tragedies in the last few episodes. Um, you know we're talking about London Bridge now. Um, something obviously Mother Nature getting involved. Um, and this does happen from from time to time. So yeah, we we, we certainly just need to uh, be grateful that uh, you know the rest of us uh, are all okay, and uh, just hope that yeah, all of those people make a speedy recovery. Also, also from my side, I think it's important that we all become organ donors, right? I think that it's another call for a lot of us to think about organ donation when we are dead. Uh, we can we can save a life in in our in our death, um, and so I think it's interesting to. I certainly have been thinking about it quite seriously over the last couple of days. Um, I need to look into it and how yeah. it works and all that stuff. But to be an organ donor means you can save people's lives long after you're gone, and so I think it's an interesting call to make. Hundred percent, absolutely. Um, moving on to the next one. This one came as a bit of a surprise. The second biggest YouTuber, PewDiePie, he's been known for his gaming videos. I haven't really watched any of them, to be honest. Um, but uh, yeah, he has 102 million subscribers um, and he says he's going to be taking a bit of a break from YouTube. Quite a surprise. Yeah, to be honest, I don't I don't find it a surprise. So I actually watch him on a semi daily basis, um, and he's he's been a, I've been a big fan right. of his for a long time, um, and he makes a video every single day, right? So it's it's exhausting, I'm sure, <laughs> to put the content out every single day. Yeah. Um, and we've seen a similar sure. trend from a lot of the big YouTubers in the space, um, because this YouTube algorithm rewards frequency and, and wants you to post as much time as much as possible because they're trying to maximize watch time. The kind of incentive for sure. these creators is to create and create and create and create and create. And so often they are on their own schedules, they're doing all they can to get a video out every day or every week. Um, and unfortunately, that does lead to burnout in some cases. And so PewDiePie has been going daily for years now. And so I, I'm, I for one, am not surprised. I'm interested, I'm interested to see what happens to his stats and to his watch time and whatnot. Um, yeah. And because the, the, biggest, the biggest worry when people take these kind of breaks is, uh, do they stay relevant, right? Is he going to stay relevant as the biggest creator on the platform? Um, I personally think he is because he's got such a rabid fan base that love him. They'll wait for him and they'll, and they'll put out a good thing. Um, but what's been interesting to watch with PewDiePie is how his content has changed over the years. Like, I know you said he's a gamer, but he hasn't. He, he does m some gaming videos. But for example, the video I posted today was on ancient Greek philosophy. And he was basically talking rubbish about Twitter and talking about how virtue signaling on Twitter can be likened to what Aristotle said back in the day. And so his content really is much more varied than the media gives him credit for. And I think he's found an amazing way to interact with his audience on a daily basis, day by day by day by day, and build really, really passionate fans. And so personally, I don't think this break is going to do anything bad for him. I think he's going to be refreshed and come back with a new set of eyes. But obviously, the media runs away with it and says PewDiePie is dead, PewDiePie is never coming back, right? Right. Um, and so we'll have to watch, watch and see what happens. Yeah, these, these types of breaks are always interesting to watch. I mean, all of the big YouTubers have gone through this time. I mean, I think being a, a watcher rather than a sort of poster, um, you don't see all of the negative comments and all of the, you know, all of that type of feedback that I think has quite a big effect on someone's self-esteem. Um, and, you know, certainly just in terms of burnout, sometimes YouTubing can be a full-time job. And uh, so just like we all take holidays, I think it's, uh, as you say, pretty, pretty fair. Um, but I'm not t entirely sure how long this break is going to be. Um, and so I think I think that's where the element of surprise com comes in when, uh, you know, this announcement was made. Also, in terms of YouTube and their sort of advertising revenue collection, uh, do you think they're concerned about this? Or do you think they're quite happy that all of his previous viewers are now just going to spend more time on other channels? So that's it's quite an amusing question because a lot of his content is so edgy that YouTube don't really monetize his stuff anymore. Right, so he's he's an, he's the number one creator on the platform, and he's got this love hate relationship with the with the with YouTube because YouTube wants lots of family friendly content. They want to please advertisers, and PewDiePie has got himself in a lot of issues in the last couple of years by saying things that aren't politically correct or saying joke making jokes that potentially are offensive to some people. And so he is a big proponent of free speech, and he speaks his mind, and he doesn't care about being demonetized. Whereas YouTube. 
demonetizes a lot of his videos. So a lot of his a lot of his revenue actually comes from selling merch and selling his own games and that kind of stuff. So I don't think YouTube see him as a big revenue generator at all, right? I think they see him as a a okay. figurehead for the platform, a a kind of personality that gets people into the into the platform itself. Um, but to be honest, I don't think they make that much money off him. So yeah, that's my thoughts on that. Perfect. Just shows you how little I know about PewDiePie. <laughs> Next up, Barry, tell us about the Blitzbocker. Oh, this one hurts my heart. This one hurts my heart. So, uh, we had the we had the Cape Town Sevens this weekend, um, which is always a, a huge party here in South Africa. A really, really exciting uh, yeah. sports tournament. For those who don't know, it's rugby sevens. So it's like normal rugby, but seven person aside. It's very interesting. It's very, very short in format. Very exciting. Lots of running rugby. And the Blitzbocker, or the South African team, have been the number one team in the world for a long time now, and they really do hold our flag up high, and they win a lot of these tournaments. So they were. Performing in, in a sold-out Cape Town Stadium, which obviously was quite a vibe, and lots and lots of people all dressed up in all their all their very various gear and superhero costumes and weird and wonderful stuff, um, and a full crowd shouting for South Africa was really pulled them through the tournament, and they won every single game convincingly up until the final, and then we came came up against our, our old foe, New Zealand. Um, and in the final, we just didn't didn't perform at all. We had a few bad luck um, things go against us, and uh, unfortunately, we lost that final. And we haven't actually won our home tournament in four years now, um, which is strange because as being the number one team in the world and winning tournaments all around the rest of the world, for some reason, we seem can't seem to win in Cape Town, even though we look so good in the games going up to the final. Um, and so I wonder if there's a little bit of there's too much pressure on a home team um, with so much noise and so much um, excitement going on. Maybe there's a little bit of pressure there. New Zealand have got nothing to lose. They can just throw everything at us because they're not expected to win. I'm not quite sure what it is. You'd think that the home ground advantage would give you an advantage, but it seems in sevens, I mean, we've seen it in other countries as well. Countries find it difficult to win on their home soil which is interesting. So yeah, it's, it's sad for us. Uh, we would love to win that tournament, but the rugby there was amazing. It was great to watch. So uh, all, all around winners when it comes to a viewer perspective, unfortunately, Blitzbock. Absolutely devastating. I suppose we won the World Cup. I guess, uh, you know, we'll just, have to, we'll just have to take this one on the chin. Shall we move on to our next segment? Sounds good. Stuff I found interesting. Cool. So this is the segment of the podcast where we literally just talk about whatever we felt happened that was interesting during the week. And uh, the first one to kick us off is a film on Netflix um, that has kind of been shown in a couple of smaller cinemas and uh, it's called Marriage Story. Barry, have you heard about this one? I haven't at all. I've heard nothing about it. So when I saw it on the list again, I'm very excited to hear about what what it's all about. I'm assuming marriage in some way. <laughs> Absolutely. So to be honest, I hadn't heard of it. Um, and it was actually brought to my attention by one of our listeners. Um, so we could have put it in the what's on your mind section, but I was just going to put it this side instead. And yeah, essentially, you're completely right. It's a movie about marriage. And more importantly, a movie showing the trauma that is experienced on all sides of a divorce. Um, I found the movie incredibly authentic. I found it really real. Um, it stars sort of uh, Scarlett Johansson and a really good cast otherwise. And I'm really shocked that it's just on Netflix. Um, it's kind of got, I think, six Golden Globe oh, wow. nominations. Um, and uh, yeah, definitely some high accolades there. So I would certainly recommend giving it a watch. Um, let's just talk about a couple of the a couple of the key themes here. So divorce something that's obviously very traumatic for all sides of uh, any family and uh, this just really a, a sincere story um, showcasing you through every single stage of that trauma so two people who get together for the right reasons fall in love um, and ultimately through the marriage um, start to kind of f fall apart um, the, the, the interesting thing for for this film that I felt was that each party has their own reasons and they're both really good people I, I wouldn't say any one party has been portrayed as you know the the guilty party in in, in this marriage but certainly I think the the key theme here um, is uh, to kind of remember the reasons for for getting married um, so you know kind of key concepts like compromise equality um, this this is a story of a guy who kind of got selfish over over time um, and and he sort of lost sight of of his wife's inner yearns um so yeah basically just a story of, of really how that all happens how lawyers get involved um it wasn't ever the intention to do that but as soon as lawyers get involved um it, it just escalates so quickly 
all of a sudden demons of the past are, are brought into the courtroom in the worst way possible. Um, and right at the end of the film, you, you realize it's all completely unnecessary. Um, so yeah, I thought it was a fascinating film to watch. Um, and, and also kind of at the end, uh, you know, you kind of as you ponder through what you just watched, I think you definitely start to question the power of separation. Um, sometimes I think that's a, a useful tool as well. Um, and it, it definitely uh, it definitely portrays to us how divorce is, is seen sometimes as the only option when there is another tool that is that of separation. Um, and certainly at the end of this journey, both parties you know, still in love with each other, um, but have now moved on. And obviously this journey that's past them. Um, so yeah, I, I think let's just unpack this a little bit. Um, you know, what, what are your sort of thoughts on, on marriage generally, Barry, um, and, and divorce? Yeah, I think it's, I think it's one of life's biggest challenges, right? I think, um, getting, getting into a marriage is very, very challenging for both parties because humans are complicated. Humans are really, really complicated yeah. and humans are flawed. And, uh, we bring all of the baggage and all of the the, the trauma of previous relationships and childhood and family relationships to that marriage. And uh, often we're looking for someone to solve our own problems. And that's a terrible place to start in, in any marriage, any relationship for that matter, is that looking for someone to solve your problem. Um, for me, for me, the way I think about it is that two people are, try, are coming together to build something in between, build a relationship together. They're not trying to become one thing, and they're not trying to rely on each other for absolutely everything in every circumstance. Um, and so, I, obviously, I, I'm not married yet, and I'm quite far from marriage, so it's hard to speak with any real authority. Um, but that's kind of the conception that I have. When you think about divorce, I think an interesting concept that I've come across in the last couple of months is similar to separation. It's something called conscious uncoupling. And I read a wonderful blog right. post about it, um, talking about how sometimes people fall in love and they're in love for a period of time and everything is great. And then, as you say, things start to fall apart slowly but surely. And what conscious uncoupling tries to define or articulate is that sometimes two people realize that they'll be happier without it, without each other or happier not in that relationship. And so instead of seeing a separation as this traumatic end to something that destroys everyone's lives and really like wrecks havoc throughout all the families and the children and whatnot, yeah. can two mature adults realize that they're not good for each other or something has gone wrong? And can they uncouple themselves in a positive and healthy way, which allows them to move forward in their lives, understanding that they're both doing it in their own best interests? And that's an interesting concept because that requires a level of vulnerability and a level of like communication between two partners that we very rarely see. Um, it's so hard because there's so much emotion involved. There's so much investment of time and energy and efforts. And often the people have this sunk cost fallacy where they've invested years and years of their life into this person. And to all of a sudden think about, oh, I'm going to throw all of that away now and start again, that's a terrifying, yep. terrifying prospect. Especially when that prospect is is potentially to be lonely for a little bit of time while you're trying to figure things out. But I find the, the concept of conscious uncoupling really, really powerful and beautiful in a way. That emotional maturity to be able to see that this is not working and it's not good for either of us is really, really special. Unfortunately, that situation is quite rare because people get angry and defensive and obviously they're so emotionally invested Absolutely. that these things happen. And as you say, when lawyers get involved, things get even messier. Um, but I think that it calls for more emotional maturity. The more emotionally mature sure we are, the more secure we are in the fact that we aren't perfect, that we are flawed, that we can't do everything right, there are things that go wrong and life happens. I think the more we can understand yeah. that, the better position we are to actually make the better choice for ourselves. And if that means separating, that means separating. If that means figuring it out and fighting through the rough times, that's what it means. Um, and every situation is different in that regard. Chad, I know you're getting married in a little bit of time, so I'm sure this resonates with you. So like, what are you, what are you thinking about as you look towards your marriage in the future? Well, that's the thing. So I thought it was a fascinating film, um, as I said, just because of how authentic it was. Um, so yeah, it certainly brings into perspective, as you said, the, the reasons for getting married, the, 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 the good things. Um, I think important thing is to, at any point of difficulty throughout the marriage, you need to kind of come back to those core reasons. And I think, uh, I think that's an important tool that I think a lot of people lose sight of. Um, no marriage is going to be perfect. Um, and I think that is also another reality that everyone needs to, uh, you know, be aware of. Um, and yeah, I mean, just in terms of, I think, how generationally um, divorce has become a lot more popular. Um, and yeah, people seem to be giving in a lot easier. Um, I, I certainly think we need to learn lessons from uh, our older generations where, you know, you hear these great stories of my grandparents as an example, being together for sort of 
40, 40 years or so. Um, and yeah, I think those are those are really good stories to uh, to hold on to. And I think, as I said, just keeping keeping true to the reasons why you got married in the first place. Um, as I said, this film is really emotional. Um, I would definitely recommend watching it. The, the thing that was interesting for me is, you know, this is kind of, it's not one of those uh, attention-grabbing topics. It's not like an action film where you are glued to the screen at all times. Yet, I feel like the way that it has been done, um, I, I felt like I needed to watch it through at every point in the film um, and yeah would certainly recommend giving it a watch the writer and director a guy by the name of Noah Baumbach got divorced uh, a little while back um, so there's hints that this film was potentially his way of portraying that experience um, but yeah certainly worth giving it a watch especially if it's just on Netflix You've certainly sold me, Jared. I'm adding it to my list right now. Um, and just chatting about the writer a little bit, I think that it's a, it's a dirty little secret in, in the world of art and the world of creative expression that we always do imbue our own stories into what we create, right? It's impossible to yeah. create something that's really authentic without imbuing some of our own emotion and our own story. So I'm sure there's plenty of his divorce in that movie as well. Um, and I'm really excited to go and check it out and, and, and see what it's all about. Definitely let me know what you have to think about it. The next one, something that you've seen this week. Yeah, so almost by coincidence, I found myself coming across a lot of Winston Churchill over the last week or two. Um, and so I watched a movie called Our Darkest Hour, which is a wonderful movie. Um, it came out in 2017, and Gary Oldman played Winston Churchill then. And that movie looks at his... He's kind of when he starts as prime minister in the middle of World War II, when the British Parliament was in chaos and Hitler was all over the Europe and was really taking over taking over the world, um, and the transition from him becoming prime minister and then getting the British people back onto a standing level to be able to fight against the British, right up until Dunkirk and right up until his famous speech where he says we'll fight them on the beaches, um, and it's one of those movies where I. I knew a little bit about World War II and I know a little bit about the history, but but the characters are what makes history so fascinating. And to watch this Winston Churchill character, who's such an eccentric guy and such a weird and wacky dude, but at the top of the, the British Parliament and really leading the charge against Nazis and against Hitler himself. Um, he really was a fascinating guy and a very charismatic leader, a very, a, a very like positive and kind of war a proper wartime general right you can't really see churchill in a peacetime parliament because it, it wouldn't make sense but in that moment where britain needed him the most and needed him to step up he really did show that the way you carry yourself the way you inspire your people can really change the the way that the war ends up when Churchill came into power, Britain was really on the ropes and they were expecting the German Luftwaffe on their shores in, in no time. And they had no soldiers left because they were all sitting on the beach in, in Normandy in France, um, unable to be rescued. And he kind of turned that, that, that morale around and said, no, we will fight until the very end. And that kind of perseverance in the face of all of his advisors telling him to, to, to go and do peace talks with Germany. And they were talking to Italy to try and mediate those peace talks. And he refused. He says that Hitler is a dictator that we cannot negotiate with. And he was the only one who fought that. And by his like words alone, using the English language and using his charisma and his, his public speaking ability, he really changed the way that Britain thought about the war and in essence changed the world. And so he's one of those characters that is just monumental in world history and will look back on with fondness for, for, de for decades and centuries to come. So that was the movie. And then also I've been wanting to read this, this autobiography called The Last Lion, which is written by a guy called William Manchester. And uh, this is a three-volume biography. Each, each volume is about 900 pages long. <laughs> so it is, wow. it, is quite, it is quite the epic. And it, it follows his entire life, so from when he was born to when he, went to when he died. But every single person who I know who's read this and has recommended it on blogs that I read or Twitter, people that I follow, has given it like the highest recommendation possible. So I really want to dig into it. And this movie was the inspiration for me to finally to dig into the first volume. So I'm like two chapters into the first volume. Got a long, long way to go. Um, but I think that we can all do with a little bit of Winston Churchill in our lives. We can steal a little bit of his charisma, a little bit of his like chutzpah and oomph. We can really do a lot with our lives. Um, and so I've, I'm drawing a lot of inspiration from him at the moment. And I wanted to share that with everybody. Amazing stuff. Yeah, I definitely don't have too much to add to that. Uh, I think you've uh, certainly detailed out his life there quite well. I don't know a whole lot about the wars and, and sort of that history myself, um, but definitely need to get learning. Um, I certainly saw a, a bit about his character in The Crown, 
which we spoke about a couple of weeks back. Um, obviously, Churchill being quite a key figure in the first series. And uh, yeah, I mean, certainly get surprised no matter where I am in the world to see a Winston Churchill statue. Prague, where I was last weekend, being a, a one of those uh, cases. So yeah, certainly somebody who's uh, touched history books uh, in the most profound way. Um, and if you just have... A th- a life that is as meaningful to have three volumes written of 900 pages each. I think that's quite telling. Yeah, I think that's for a lot of Europe, he was the savior of Europe. Like, I don't think it's too grandiose to say that without him, England and France and um, Italy and all these countries, Hungary and all these places would be in real trouble. Um, and we, we might have seen a Hitler rule where we ruled Europe for a long period of time. Um, and so I don't think it's too yeah. grandiose a term. I think he deserves those statues. Um, interesting about the, 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 the connection with the royal family, one of the most fascinating things about him was that he was the first person to actually deal with the royal family with a kind of detachment that most people didn't have. Previous prime yeah. ministers would kind of bow to the royal family and be very different and very subservient to the royal family because yeah. of how much power they had. He kind of walked into his first meeting with King George and just kind of <laughs> laid out the lay of the land and said, I don't really like you, dude, but we're going to have to work together and we have to figure out a way to do it. <laughs> and he didn't treat him with the same sort of grandeur, yeah. like like hero worship we often see with the royals. And what that did was actually built a relationship with King George because for for George, he realized, okay, this is just a human and I'm just a human. And they built a really special bond that went beyond politics or beyond kind of the power that they both held at that point. Um, And it just took a little bit of like, I'm not gonna really. I'm not gonna like put this guy on a pedestal. Like I'm here to save Europe from devastation. Um, And that was really cool to see. Fascinating stuff. Um, Let's move on and look to the future. Looking ahead. All right, and this week on Looking Ahead, we are looking to the new decade. It's almost the end of the decade, and 2020 is around the corner. And so what I thought might be interesting was to try a new segment here on the show and look at a rapid-fire segment. So what I found was there's a great article on on The Guardian, um, which is a UK publication, looking at 20 predictions for technology in 2020 and beyond. So what I thought I'd do is I'd pull a few out, and I'd throw them at Chad. Chad hasn't seen these at all, so it's going to be straight off the cuff. And I thought I'd get his quick rapid Rapid fire thoughts on each one as to whether he agrees or disagrees. Um, and we'd love to hear your thoughts in the comments as well. So if you do hear these predictions, wherever you are on whatever social media platform you're on, let us know what your thoughts are. Obviously, these predictions are always interesting to put your put your uh, rod in the sand and make a call and then see in 2021, 2022, whether you are right or not. Chad, are you ready to get started? I'm ready. All right. The first one is that the Tesla Cybertruck won't ship in 2020. Thoughts? I mean, this one's a bit of a no-brainer, really. They put their release date at 2021. How is this even on the list? I think it's an easy one to start with. It's just going to ease you into it. You know, <laughs> ease you into it. I agree completely. It, it, it won't be even... Even 2021 is going to be a push, I think. I, 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 would, rec- I would say 2022 yeah. is a safe bet. All right, the next one. Google Duplex won't come to Europe. Now, Google Duplex, for those who don't know, it was that amazing invention, not invention, innovation that Google showed where the robot was booking the hair salon appointment on the behalf of the user. So at one of the Google I.O. conferences last year, um, the, the, the CEO kind of showed off this new technique where they used machine learning and artificial intelligence to get a robot to book appointments for you. And so what they showed was a robot phoning a real hair salon and having a conversation in real time, adjusting to what the, the human was saying on the other side and booking a hair appointment or a restaurant appointment, etc. Now, this was fascinating because wow. it opens up a whole new world of AI and a whole new world of automation and robotics. But what was really terrifying was that the person on the other side didn't know it was a robot. And so there's a lot of ethical dilemmas that come into play. And Europe has been very, very stingy and very, very restrictive with their, their regulations especially the GDPR with the privacy. And uh, it kind of defeats the point if the thing has to go, by the way, I'm a robot, and has to kind of identify itself because then it defeats <laughs> the point, right? Um, and so the, the prediction is that it won't come to Europe. Europe will miss out on this because they're too restrictive with their regulations. Do you have any any thoughts, Chad? Well, I, I didn't know about their technology, and it's uh, fascinating that that is ready. Um, so just the, just the sound that it won't be released because of GDPR is, is very different to it won't be released because it's not ready. So that's fascinating. In terms of GDPR, GDPR definitely being in Europe, I've, I've felt it. So I was here on the day that it came into effect, um, and at the time being at a working at a, a, a top ten EMEA investment bank, um, it was, certainly was a, a, a big focus. Um, certainly, all of us uh, online has been have been really annoyed with it um, when going to any new website, having to click on all those cookie cookies notifications. Yeah. <laughs> 
Hundred percent, but I think it's a it's a powerful piece of regulation, and I think it's there for the right reason. Um, I think it, yeah, as you say, safeguards us against uh, privacy breaches. So, interesting one. Uh, I definitely see where they came to that conclusion. Interesting, interesting. We'll have to see what comes with that. The next one is looking at advertising. Um, advertising is obviously the bedrock of a lot of giant tech companies, Google, Amazon, um, Facebook, etc. And uh, we've seen, we've talked, we've chatted a lot about this business model is a little bit broken in the past. And what we're seeing as well is a shift in user behavior from searches on Google to a lot of people using smart speakers in their home. So using Amazon Echoes and HomePods and all these kinds of things. And with without the friction of having to pick up your phone, ordering groceries or ordering stuff to, on, online to be delivered to your house. Now on top of that, obviously these companies need to monetize this somehow. And at the moment, there hasn't been ads when you go and do these kinds of things or use your smart speaker, but the monetization has to come at some stage. So the prediction is that in 2020, they start putting ads on top of this voice platform, potentially increasing the friction and potentially making the user experience worse, but in order to monetize that platform. Chad, what do you think? I definitely think it's possible. Um, I mean, let's look at the people who are doing these advertising. I mean, the smart homes uh, currently out there at the moment are Siri, belonging to Apple, uh, Google Home, obviously belonging to Google, and uh, Amazon Alexa, belonging to Amazon. Each of those three platforms um, would be able to throw an advert in the mix at, at some point. So I think that could definitely start coming. Um, I would really uh, not be pleased with that at all because you've bought these devices. Royalties and license fees are paid to, uh, you know, by the manufacturer um, to these companies for those services. So I, yeah, I would be pretty annoyed if that happens, but very possible in this uh, day and age. We have to wait and see. We have to wait and see. All right, the next one is talking about cell phone technology, looking at 5G. Now, 5G, we chatted a little bit about in our last episode, is the new part of the spectrum, which is way faster and way more reliable, theoretically, um, in some instances, and has really like kind of captured the captured the the new thinkers of, of the cell phone technology and trying to think of where is this technology going to go in the future, what kind of communication protocols are going to be in place. And 5G, for the most part, has kind of been isolated to some of the most developed cities in the world, some of the major hubs of New York, San Francisco, Tokyo, London, etc. It hasn't really had that much of an impact outside of that. And the prediction here from The Guardian is that in 2020, 5G will become a much more meaningful um, portion of communication and a much more meaningful piece of our lives. What do you think, Chad? I mean, we've seen all of the, the generation iterations in the past. I mean, let's let's remember 3G, obviously a while a while back now, but how much that changed everything. Um, going from, you know, edge to uh, HSDPA and all of those types of technologies. Uh, and now 4G is, is completely normal. Um, and obviously with each of these iterations, the, the speed of the data uh, coming across... Uh, dramatically changes our lives so i completely agree i mean even if we look at the the trend of how fiber is now in the home uh you know in in south africa which is uh, you know quite a quite a big development and certainly all all over the world um i definitely could see 5g coming into play uh, next year obviously the infrastructure and all of that type of development um is the only barrier i'd say um but yeah let's have a look to see if that prediction is correct Great. All right, we've got a few more here. The next one we look at is virtual reality. So the prediction here from The Guardian is that virtual reality is going to have another mini boom. So VR has been a technology that has been has so much potential over the last couple of years, but hasn't really hasn't really like paid out that potential just yet. We haven't seen a mass market product that's really taken VR and taken it to the people. Um, at the moment, it's kind of it's kind of resigned to a very small part of the market. Um, so what do you think about VR, Chad? Is it going to be have its big year in 2020? Um, so yeah, VR, an interesting one. Uh, for me, I haven't really got too involved in VR, but certainly I know PlayStation made it a lot more accessible to those who already had a console. Uh, things like the Oculus Rift, um, you know, quite a big one for, for the PC gamers out there. Um, and of course, when we were doing our board course, Barry was quite fascinated with the idea of a virtual change room. Um, so yeah, interesting to see whether that will come out again um, and have another mini boom. Um, I'm not too convinced, seeing as it hasn't really touched my side at all. 
I, I tend to agree. I think that there's a lot of user experience issues that still need to be fixed in that there's a lot of issues with um, motion sickness and kind of latency in a lot of those devices. And while there's so much potential, we simply haven't seen that killer app that's going to force people to go and buy it for their Christmas presents and as you spend a lot of time on it. From what I've seen, it's fun for like yeah. 20 minutes until you start feeling a bit dizzy and feeling a bit woozy and that's pretty much it. And when you compare that to people who can sit in front of Netflix for hours, sit in front of a PlayStation for hours, I'm, I'm back to see how it's going to really change user behavior until they fix some of those little glitches. Yeah, I think every couple of years you, you get one of these types of technologies that just doesn't quite hit the spot. I mean, let's look at 3D televisions um, and how we all thought that would be so cool, but just that not perfect execution, um, obviously, yeah, just resulting in a, a bit of a dead technology. No, without a doubt, without a doubt. So I have to watch and see what happens with VR in the future. All right, I'm going to call one last one here, and I'm going to do this because Chad loves his gear. Um, so the prediction here is that the next iPhone is going to have not one, not two, not three, but four cameras on the rear side of the device. <laughs> uh, we've we've seen a oh, we've seen a huge battle between all the smartphone manufacturers. How many cameras can we squeeze into this thing? Chad, do you think that the next iPhone is going to have four? Four cameras. I'm just trying to think what you'd need each of those for. I mean, we've got the the telephoto lens, we've got the sort of normal, and we've got the wide angle now. As far as I can see, those are all the ones we need. Um, but you know, certainly uh, th this trend is not one that I would have seen coming in the first place. So you know, maybe that could happen. Uh, we could maybe see four cameras. I think it's ridiculous. Um, and I've also heard of uh, a sort of I'm not sure if it's a mental condition, but there's a condition. Um, it's a phobia. And this has been affecting people with the iPhone 11, uh, basically the shape of the cameras. So it's a phobia where you can't look at patterns with lots of circles. And uh, I think if they just add more circles to the mix, uh, they might start alienating some users. That's interesting. I've never heard I've never heard of that before. Um, so maybe the, the guys with that phobia need to speak up and, and stop that fourth camera from getting on there. Absolutely. Well, that brings an end to our rapid-fire round. Thank you, Chad. What I think will be interesting is that to hear from you guys, hear what your thoughts are on those various topics. And hopefully in a year's time, we can look back on these predictions and see what turned out right and what turned out wrong. Um, as with all these tech, you can never really predict. The future is so different, and often people can't even imagine what's coming down the pipe. And so we'll, we'll wait, wait with bated breath for 2020 and see what's happening with tech. Chad, shall we move on to the next segment? Absolutely. Let's move on to our next segment. Develop and grow. Right, so on this next one, Barry's added something pretty interesting to the list. Obviously, this is our segment where we strive to be better in every sense, fitness being quite a key one there. I think fitness is one of those things that just keeps us going, um, it keeps us living longer, and ultimately uh, lets us get rid of all of those uh, negative toxins and, and, and that kind of thing. So tell us about your fit fitness movement, Barry, and how it's changed your life. Yeah, so I'm the kind of person who really loves sports. So I play a lot of hockey and a lot of cricket. And so during season, a lot of my fitness training is focused on those sports. And I really enjoy that kind of team environment where I get pushed and really like push myself to be as fit as I can so I can play the sports at the right level. The problem I face is that when I get to off season, so places like now in December, when there isn't really a season, we're kind of in between sports, I end up trying to go to the gym by myself and often get very, very lazy when I go by myself. Like I'll go into the weight room, I'll go into the cardio space and I'll, I'll work out, but not very hard. And obviously often I'll get tired and I'll give up very easily. What I've been trying to do to get over that in the last couple of weeks is go to classes and go to like gym classes, especially high intensity interval training. And what that is, is that a lot of short exercises, so mixing between cardio and weight training and strength training, um, and doing it at high intensity for short periods of time with short breaks in between, getting packing as much as possible into a 30 or 40 minute slot. And that has really been helping me to push myself way harder than I would have if I was just by myself in the gym. Having someone there to kick your butt a little bit and kind of push you every single like set and every single time you change over has really forced me to push a lot harder and I've seen a lot bigger results than I do in the gym. Not only that, but it's a lot more interesting. Having people around you and having different exercises to do based on what a trainer is giving you has really kind of helped me with the novelty factor. I got I got very bored in the gym when I was just doing my own thing and this has really opened my eyes to what these classes can actually do for you. And so I think there's a little bit of benefit to paying for these kinds of experiences, whether it was with the person, personal trainer itself or in a class, just because you train so much harder. Um, Chad, have you done any of these classes before? 
I have done some of these classes before, so I've actually done quite a few of them. And I think the, the interesting topic here is how a lot of these high-intensity interval training uh, classes are sometimes stigmatized to be only for women. Um, so if we look at the two that I've done, um, they were not designed for me, um, but I got a lot of value out of them. So if we look at somebody by the name of Kayla Itzinus, uh, so she is an Australian um, fitness, basically I think I think she's done her personal training qualifications and all those kinds of things. She took to Instagram and social media and really re revolutionized the fitness world a few years ago um, with her high intensity interval training program called Bikini Body Guide, I think. And uh, yeah, I was certainly training for my bikini body. Um, and to be completely honest, uh, I got the best results I've ever had. Um, functional strength, uh, you know, certainly in South Africa, those sort of cross-training type uh, events where you've got like warrior race or MP challenge, uh, you know, where you kind of have a, a 10 kilometer run with obstacles in the middle. Um, that type of training really boded very well for, for those types of, of challenges. Um, so yeah, I certainly had really good results with it. Um, I did it with my partner. Um, and then another noteworthy one um, being body pump. This is the Les Mills uh, class. You do see a couple of guys there in it, um, but I certainly would love to see a lot more. Um, these are very different to what, you know, us guys who, who try to a lot of the time be very macho and lift our heavy weights, um, <laughs> you know, sometimes doing... 200 squats with a lot of, you know, not a lot of resistance um, is actually a, a more worthwhile exercise. Yeah, I think it's a very important point that functional strength versus the kind of ego-driven stuff that a lot of guys do in the gym. I mean, we, we all know those guys and we've all been those guys at some point where all we care about is our biceps, right? And we go and do these bicep curls because we want huge biceps. Um, and, and what these kind of classes teach you is that the functional strength is actually way more important. If you can get past the aesthetic stuff, you're just looking for health and looking for fitness, these kinds of things are so, so valuable. And, and building that core strength and building all of those and those movements that are very functional in your day-to-day -day life is really, really powerful. Yep. And so as guys, I think we need to lose that ego a little bit and kind of think about what am I really doing this for, right? If I'm not a bodybuilder, if I'm not training for some sort of crazy bodybuilding competition, what am I trying to do to make myself yep. as fit and strong as possible to perform as best as I can in the various areas that I perform in? Um, and these kind of classes, I think, are a great opportunity for guys to push themselves out of their comfort zone do something a little bit different um, but I found fantastic success from it and really I'm enjoying the process and so I hope more guys out there will actually join these kinds of classes amazing stuff really happy to hear about that uh, shall we move on to the next one so this one is a little bit of a rant on my part <laughs> um, but hopefully I won't go too deep into it um, but yeah we've just experienced a bit of bad faith um, in terms of wanting to rent a property, had everything in order, put in an offer. That's how it works in the UK. You put an offer in for rental. Um, so yeah, obviously those listening in South Africa, it works a bit differently. Um, but yeah, got all the offer through um, past referencing, did all of the, the contracts and all of that kind of thing. Um, landlord had signed, uh, paid the deposits, everything was through to go through. And we get a call today uh, to say that, yeah, they've received a higher offer over the weekend. Um, and not just that, but uh, basically it could be true, it could not be. Um, I'm, I'm not making a judgment on this, um, but really just saying that the, the, the landlord um, was not in the right mental state to, to sign the contract. Um, so for me, this is just a case of uh, all out bad faith. They found a better deal. Um, and essentially, um, we are in a really good position to fight this. Um, but instead, we've decided, you know, let's keep that good karma and let's resist the urge, um, which is quite an interesting one. Uh, it talks quite interestingly to something that Barry said a while back, um, which was, you know, not assuming ill intent, uh, malice or ill intent. Um, and, you know, coming from an auditing background, something that we're always aware of is this professional skepticism. And throughout this process, I must be honest, I was skeptical at a number of times. Um, and I just kind of kept thinking, no, let me not assume malice or ill intent, you know, all of that stuff. And, at the end of the road, uh, you know, we've now done a whole bunch of admin um, and it results in us not getting anything. So I also wanted to to kind of just chat to you about your thoughts on on commission, the world of, of agents and commission. Um, th that conflict, that, that self-conflict um, where, you know, a lot of the time people's uh, inner values are, are challenged by the way they get their paycheck at the end of the day. What's your thoughts on this on the subject? 
This is actually really timely. I was actually at a lunch a few hours ago today, um, and we were chatting about, I was chatting to a couple who are looking to buy a house here in South Africa. And they had a, a semi-similar story where they had they were negotiating a price with someone and kind of had put an offer in and had all the all the indications that they were going to accept that offer and all of a sudden out of nowhere it falls through because someone else comes with something else. Um, and as you say, the incentives are not aligned, right, between the real estate agents, between the guys negotiating the contracts and the buyer and the seller on each side. Each party is trying to screw each other almost. They're trying to like make as much money yeah. as possible out of this transaction. And the real estate agent, because they're getting paid on commission, obviously wants the higher price as possible. So if you're trying to buy or trying to rent, your your agent is actually not on your side because they want the highest price possible. You want the lowest price possible. And this is kind of a market Definitely. dynamic that's kind of um, typified the real estate market. And it's made, it's made it such a messy and like... People don't enjoy this process at all. It's one of life's worst processes. Yeah. Um, and it's because of this yeah. this, this misalignment of, of incentives. And naturally, because the real estate agent has the information, they know what's happening in the market, they understand what's on the markets, you as a buyer or seller, you're at a huge disadvantage when it comes to the information that you have. And so it's not really a fair fight at all. You don't have the information as to what the seller is doing. You don't understand their mental framework, what they are trying to do on their side. And so the more information we can get into this market and the more empowering we can give to, to these buyers and to these renters, the better it's going to be. Unfortunately, the market just doesn't work that way. <clears throat> and so I've seen some interesting plays from, from technology providers to try and create these two-sided marketplaces where the incentives are aligned. So things like the, the, the real estate agent um, earning commission based on a survey of the buyer's expectations and the seller's expectations as opposed to a pure monetary commission and things like that. So I think there's, there's interesting experiments that can be run in this world, but unfortunately the major players aren't interested in that because they're trying to maximize profits. And so I, I, I feel your pain. I, I commend you for not going full hog with, with all the letters of the law <laughs> and kind of like holding to yourself. Yeah. I think that, that that's really cool. I think that a lot of times we need to kind of pick the battles we want to fight, right? You can't fight every single battle and some you just have to let go. Um, um, and real estate is one of those things that can get you into a tizzy and really like make you anxious and, and whatnot if you let it get to you. Um, and so those are my thoughts on, on that kind of story. 100%. Um, I mean, I think it's really good to see those uh, solutions that are, are trying to combat this problem. A, a website like Private Property in South Africa, and I suppose the equivalent being Purple Bricks here in the UK, um, yeah, really just trying to cut out the middleman. And uh, they actually provide a little bit of legal help in, in the middle. So, you know, you can get all your contracts sorted and all of that type of thing. Um, you don't necessarily need an agent for that. So, uh, yeah, I, I think it's definitely an industry that needs a bit of change. Um, and yeah, I mean, certainly hope, yeah, us refraining from a, a very, very tempting um, vindictive spot, um, you know, bodes well in the future shall we move on to our next segment let's do it what's on your mind so what's on your mind we've got a question today from a listener um yeah let's have a listen hi guys my name is christine loving the podcast you guys have been doing so far so my question for you today is with regards to barefoot running i just wanted to tell you about a book that i that I read called Born to Run by Christopher McDougall. So what I found quite interesting is that running shoes today could be weakening our muscles in our feet then strengthening them. And various studies that were done um, and written about in the book were actually proved that the more cushioned the shoe, the less protection it provides. If we were born without shoes, are designed to walk or run, and naturally four foot strike, then why would heel striking in modern footwear be of any benefit to us? And uh, yeah, I'd just like to know Barry's thoughts on after reading the book and uh, what do you take from it? Thanks guys. Cool, so the book Born to Run, I haven't read it myself, so I'm definitely gonna be listening to Barry's thoughts on this. I was referred to this book as well, by a couple of runners um, and really being one of those staple books for anyone who is serious on running. Don't know why I haven't read it yet. Um, but yeah, I believe fascinating tale about a tribe um, that basically showcases how the human body is built to run. Now, in terms of the technique, Barry, talk us through it. 
Yeah, so I'm glad I'm glad that this was brought up. Thank you, Christine, for the question. This is a hotly debated topic in the world of hardcore runners, right? The minimalist versus the traditional Nike sneaker. Um, and like you say, this book follows a tribe in Kenya. And so when you think when you think long distance running, often you think of countries like Kenya and Ethiopia because they've de- they've developed and bred these incredible athletes who can run for long periods of time and incredible speeds. And what this book aims to do, as far as I remember, is kind of follow their journey and why they became the kind of running powerhouse that they are. Um, and this tribe, they used to run upwards of a hundred kilometers on just their bare feet, running across dunes, rocks, um, sand, all sorts of crazy stuff. And running running at such a level and at such a skill level that it might be worth looking back at them as to how do we improve our running today. As Christine says, today's running shoes tend to have a lot of cushioning at the back of the heel and that often speaks to a lot of the road running that we do as as runners um with so much pressure going on your feet every single time you hit the road a lot of these shoes are developed these heels to kind of cushion that and help the runners be more comfortable what's the what the theory says is that by doing that we've kind of changed the way that humans run entirely from what they used to do and are maybe doing more harm than good by cushioning that artificially, we've changed the way we run from instead of running on the balls of our feet, which is what our ancestors used to run on, a lot of runners are running on their heel first, and their heel hits the ground and then their toe, as opposed to running on the ball of their feet. That often, that can point, it's a bit controversial, but it can point to some knee injuries, some back injuries, etc., from that change in the running gait. And so what a lot of the minimalist shoe movements comes from that book. Like that book is the as you say the staple for that kind of that kind of thinking. And these minimalist shoes try to artificially recreate that barefoot feeling while not tearing up the bottom of your soles. So it gives you a little a tiny tiny little bit of protection to help you run on cobblestones or rocks or whatever the story is, but it tries to recreate that that world where back in the day you ran just on your bare feet. Um in my in my opinion, I haven't tried any of the barefoot shoes in very much detail. I haven't I haven't really done any long runs in any of them. I think they're interesting, but for me, I I would struggle even just to run a 10k in those shoes because of the how conditioned my feet are to the shoes that I've been running in for so long. So it's one of those things where it takes a long time to get used to it. And if you made the decision to switch to barefoot running, it would take you a couple of months to get to a stage where you actually felt comfortable enough to run a long distance in it. Um, and so it is a hotly contested debate. There, it almost becomes like a tribal war between the guys. Depends on what they believe in. Um, and this book caused a lot of controversy yeah. because of that, right? There's been a lot of like scientific studies that have been trying to debunk some of the science in that book. Um, and so, as far as the science goes, it's very hard to say either way. Um, I think it's an interesting experiment to run, but you have to realize it's going to take you a long time to get used to it if you're going to give it a go. Chad, have you ever tested any of these minimalist shoes, or or have any of your friends done it? So I've personally never tested out a minimalist shoe. However, I was working with somebody before who used to, yeah, run into the office um, and walk into the office with them. So I'm talking about the shoes that have splits between the toes. Yes. Now, a lot of a lot of people socially don't accept these shoes um, <laughs> based on the way they look. They're the crux of 2019, I think. 100 <laughs> um, percent but i mean certainly the feedback that i got from him was uh, very positive on it um, if i look on his strava at his run times and that kind of thing i definitely don't see him being disadvantaged by them at all um, so yeah certainly some credibility in this way of thinking um, i would have to investigate it a bit more myself but something i find really interesting um, and uh, and fairly topical is um, the two-hour marathon break that happened a couple of months ago and technology being quite a focus point on this feat. Um, so, yeah, let's talk about the technology in the shoes, because I believe this would maybe not have been possible without those shoes. Definitely. And and that's, and that's the other side of the coin, right? So the guys who are not on the minimalist train, they, their argument will be, why should we stick to something that's so-called natural, where we can actually improve performance theoretically with technology in those shoes? Right, And so a lot of these shoes are, are very carefully engineered, very carefully designed to get the maximum force and the maximum spring out of each step to give those runners a little bit of extra coverage on the ground. And that really does open up these opportunities for, for example, the marathon to be broken in two hours, which is a tremendous feat. 
And so this debate again Absolutely. as to what is natural versus what is like modern is a, a debate we've seen across multiple different areas and multiple different ways of thinking. Um, should we stick to something just because of what our ancestors used to do, even though we've invented technology, invented ways to improve on that? Um, and do we understand the long-term implications of such technology? Or um, And that's kind of the debate that a lot of people stand on is, is what is natural these days, right? Because if you think about it, a marathon isn't really natural. It was, it was a, a sport invented a long time ago. Um, and, but not it's not what we used to do. And so is anything natural these yep. days? All of our man-made stuff is, is artificial and has kind of been pushed forward by technology. And so why should this be any different? What do you think, Chad? Yeah, uh, definitely a fascinating uh, debate. Um, I, can, I can certainly see uh, both sides of the story. Um, I think I'm going to lean on the technology side of this one just because I haven't tried those shoes out, but I'll certainly give them a go. However, I'm not entirely sure that they're feasible over long distances. Um, so yeah, very interesting one. I'll have to read the book um, eventually. Lots to do on the on my to-do list. Um, and yeah, hopefully I'll, I'll follow through with some of those things very soon. Cool. So I think that wraps up our podcast, uh, episode six of Across the Pond. Again, thank you to everyone who has been giving us feedback. I've actually met up with a few more listeners this past week and have definitely enjoyed listening to how and when people listen to the podcast. Some people actually even get together as a couple and, uh, you know, watch us on YouTube. Amazing. So we definitely Amazing. are very very grateful for that um, you know others kind of just listen to us on the tube uh, while commuting um, and so yeah we're really just uh, very blessed to become part of your daily weekly routines um, and yeah hopefully if you are watching this on YouTube you've enjoyed a bit of the silliness um, that has come <laughs> about in our Christmas episode yeah, and looking forward to next week. We've got a very exciting episode. It's our last one for the year coming up. And what we thought we would do is we revisit some of the stories we've looked at over the past couple of weeks. Uh, we started this podcast just over a month ago, and we really enjoyed doing it. And so it's amazing it's coming to the end of 2019 now. And so we're going to look back on some of the stories we've talked about, look at some of the updates and kind of what's happened since we spoke about them in the past, and also look at a few of our favorites of 2019. Um, and so I really hope you'll join us for the last one of 2019. Don't worry, we'll be back in 2020 with a strong, strong podcast right to start off the year and start off the decade. But yeah, a big thank you as well from my side for listening and for interacting and so many of the kind comments. We really love doing this and we really love that you're enjoying it listening as well. Absolutely. Wishing everyone a fantastic festive break. I uh, hope you get some good time with family and loved ones. Um, and yeah, basically just uh, enjoy, enjoy the downtime. And uh, yeah, we'll see you again next week anyone who's got amazon alexa uh, today there was an announcement that uh, it can now directly integrate to play podcasts from apple and spotify so if you've got that technology uh, there's just a little sweetener as well so thanks for tuning in please subscribe as always um, and this was episode six of across the pond, pond, across the pond with Barry and Chad. <laughs> That jingle's magic. That jingle's magic. <laughs>